Um, let's do that. Let's uh, take our Bibles and turn back to the book of uh, Job. At least we'll start there and we're, we'll very quickly depart. We're actually in uh, Job 37 in uh, kind of a holding pattern. We're circling the airport as we uh, pull together some loose ends and some themes that we've looked at uh, along the way uh, before we uh, turn to our final approach and our final descent uh, toward the end of the book here. Um, by way of review, what we're talking about right now is, is this issue of... Um, trying to make sense of Job's suffering. You'll recall that the, the main argument, the main emphasis of the book um, has been, um, well, one of the three main themes has been trying to wrestle with this idea of uh, why does this righteous man suffer? And in the midst of, of asking that question, the book holds up a very popular answer. And the popular answer that is presented through the, the, the three friends, um, Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz, uh, Job's friends, uh, the popular answer that's given is, well, Job is suffering because he's done something wrong. There's some, some untold sin in his life, and that's why uh, God is bringing this suffering. And uh, we've seen that in many ways um, that is not the case at all, and um, Job has defended his innocence throughout the book. And uh, so what we want to do now is, is kind of try to unpack and, and wrestle through this question, what, what is Job suffering about it? And why, specifically, why is the answer of the friends wrong? Or, or let me boil it down like this. Why can't we just look at the world and say everything we see happens because people have, are just reaping what they've sown? Okay, maybe that, that's a, a way to boil it down. Why can't we just look at everything that happens in the world, good things and bad things, and say those are simply the consequences of people reaping the types of things that they've sown? Because that's essentially the, the, the um, theology of the friends. It's a reaping and sowing theology. So just by way of review, this is all from last time, but I want to buzz through this because I know several of you were not here. Um, we want to try to unpack this retributive theology. Now, remember, retributive theology is just the formal, fancy name for this idea that I do right, and God blesses me, and I do what is wrong, and God punishes me. That's retributive theology. It's the reaping and sowing um, theology. Now, it is true that people reap what they sow, and last time we saw that that's true in a number of different areas. It's true in the spiritual life, which is the uh, the area that Galatians 6, the reaping and sowing verse that we typically think of, that, that's, the, that's the topic there, the spiritual life. People do reap what they sow in spiritual issues. Proverbs talks about all sorts of natural consequences, right? Last time we looked at the issue of um, if you're not diligent to store up in winter, what happens when summer comes? Or I'm sorry, turn it around. If you're not... Can you tell I'm a city boy? I don't understand this, this farming thing. Um, yeah, yeah, you know what I mean, right? If, if you don't store up in, in the harvest time, then over the winter when there are, the crops aren't growing, you have nothing to eat and you suffer for that. And, and, and Solomon in Proverbs gives all sorts of examples. He talks about friendships. He talks about diligence on the job. He talks about um, work ethic and he talks about friends and all sorts of things that he talks about. And he says, look, if, if you do what is right generally, things are going to go well. And if you make poor choices, then there are going to be consequences to that. And he gives, uh, the whole book of Proverbs is about what we might call natural consequences, both good and bad, 
And so we see that in those issues, certainly there's, there's some truth to reaping and sowing. And then we also saw a third area, what we're calling divine consequences. And, and that's going to be where God says to somebody, like, for example, the nation of Israel, his covenant people, and he says, look, guys, if you are faithful to obey my word, then here are all the blessings you're going to enjoy. But if you do not obey, if you disobey and turn away, here are the consequences. Here are the judgments that will come because of that. So reaping and sowing is true in all of those three areas. But as we saw, uh, that is an inadequate understanding uh, of trying to, to, to think through all of the suffering in life. That, that's like one piece. But the Bible gives, and I'm going to argue that the Bible gives four balancing factors that we're going to look at uh, in the course of the next week or two. Um, we have to have, first of all, a comprehensive understanding of suffering. We have to understand time versus eternity in the context of justice. We have to understand God's declarations and promises. And finally, we have to understand his character. If we don't understand all of those issues, we will end up with a lopsided way of understanding suffering in the world. Okay, And that, that's really the problem with Job's friends. They had a lopsided understanding of suffering. And because of that, their, advice, their, their interpretation and their conclusions about what was going on in Job's life were wrong all because they, they, they missed some pieces. Now, I remember I, I made a very, very feeble, poor attempt to draw puzzle, people, puzzle pieces because as I was thinking about this, I'm thinking, you know, it's kind of like a puzzle, you know, and, and you try to understand suffering and it's kind of like you got to have all the pieces and if you don't have all the pieces, then you have an inadequate view. And I tried to draw a puzzle and all of you learned last week why I'm a pastor and not an artist. Well, guess what I found? Check this out. Okay, so there, there, there's God, right? But God overall... I figured it out in PowerPoint, okay? So watch this. See, there's suffering, and there's time and eternity, and there's declarations, and there's the character of God, okay? And I didn't have to pay twenty nine ninety five for that, okay? It's amazing uh, how helpful Google can be. So, okay, but this is true. Now, now let me show you where where the friends are, okay? The friends are taking one little. See, see this little corner right here. If we just took a knife and cut off that corner, that, that's, that's where the friends are. They've got one little smidgen of suffering, and their little part of suffering says, well, people suffer because of their own sin. Now, is that true? Do people suffer because of their own sin? Sure it is, but that's, that's only the corner of what we talked. Remember last time we talked about all the different reasons people suffer. So, so the friends have just this one little thing here, and then they don't have this at all, and they don't have this at all, but then they've got one little tiny, tiny corner of the character of God and it goes like this, God is just, and he will punish all wrongdoing. Okay, That's the two bits of pieces that the friends have, and you can see why that is an inadequate understanding. So again, this is just review from last time. Uh, why do people suffer? Um, they, because of personal sin. That's what the friends were saying. But you know, also, suffering happens because of the sin of others, right? Sometimes we suffer, it's not about our sin, it's because someone else sins against me, or, or I feel the effects of someone else's sin. Sometimes we suffer because we live in a fallen world. We, we saw that this week, right? Somebody gets a brain aneurysm and dies. Why does that happen? It, it happens because we live in a fallen world. People get sick, people get diseases, people die. There's no, there's no personal sin attached to that. It's just, it just happens because we live in a broken, fallen world. 
Uh, we, we see in Job, there is suffering because of uh, satanic or demonic activity. Sometimes that occurs. We see that in the Gospels, certainly, with people that were demon-possessed and whatnot. And then sometimes people suffer because they're under divine judgment. Uh, Exodus 32 with the golden calf, we use that as an example. But, but here's what I want you to see, and this is what's relevant for understanding Job. Not all suffering is the result of personal sin or divine discipline. Okay, you with me on that? That's review. Um, let's... Um, Talk about time versus eternity. We only had two minutes in our class last week to talk about time and eternity, and we figured two minutes was not sufficient to talk about time and eternity. So, Now, now th- this is not going to be super, super profound, but I would suggest to you that the friends lacked this perspective. Okay, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar did not understand what we're about to look at here. And... If you're brave, I want you to think about this with me too. Even though we have the whole canon of Scripture, even though we know what the friends only knew in part, I think we fall right into this as well sometimes. Okay, Let's think about this. Time versus eternity. Here's the main principle. God does not always bring final justice in every situation in this life. Okay? That's the principle. God does not always bring final justice complete justice in every situation in this life. Okay? And you agree with me on that. We almost don't even have to prove that because we see that in the newspaper every day. People get away with all sorts of things. People do things. And it seems like, well, why isn't anybody doing anything about this? They just get away with it and there's no consequences to it. And that's, I think... In part, what, what, the, what the friends were wrestling with is they saw all of this stuff that was happening as God bringing justice because they thought justice has to happen in this life in some way. And if God, if there's this suffering that's going on, clearly it's God enacting his justice. But, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. As soon as we say that, we think, no, that's not always true. Because reality is scripture tells us God brings final justice in every situation. Ready? On Judgment Day. Let me show you just a couple of the dozens of verses in Scripture that that try to help us adopt this perspective, okay? You're in Job. Uh, Just go forward a a few books. Go go blow through the Psalms there in Proverbs. And uh, let's pull the car over here at Ecclesiastes, which is a very, very interesting book. Um, if you've not heard uh, David Gibson's exposition of Ecclesiastes, you need to do that. In fact, I think he did. Um, I think he did a couple of messages recently, in the last probably four or five years. Um, but years ago, he did a whole series on this. We need to find those and digitize those. I think, don't we? Um, Ecclesiastes is one of those books that wrestles with very real, very raw questions, and. I wish we had time to, to develop the, the main theme, and, and we, we won't have time to do that this morning. But I want to draw your attention to Ecclesiastes chapter 12 to the conclusion of the book. Okay, the conclusion of the book. And if you know anything about Ecclesiastes, you're very familiar with these verses. Verse 13, the conclusion, uh, the preacher says, probably Solomon, uh, is this. Here, here, When all has been heard is this. Fear God... And keep his commandments. You want to sum up, 
you want to sum up what it means to walk with God. There it is, right? Fear him, which, which is a very comprehensive term, which means trust him, love him, submit to him, honor him. It, it's kind of a, it's kind of a catch-all of how you think about walking with God in the Old Testament. So fear God, keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. Now watch verse 14, okay? For God will be, bring every act to judgment. Everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Okay? That's a warning. There's, there's the sort of the concluding statement, fear God, keep his commandments. That's what walking with God is about. And then there's this warning. Let me tell you why that's especially important. Because God's going to bring everything that happens to judgment one day. Even the hidden things. Good things, bad things, all those things will come unto judgment. Now that's important because we don't want to say, we don't want to say when God delays his justice, he's being unjust. Right? When people get away with things, when things happen and we go, why, you know, why is the innocent suffering and why is the guilty prospering? Why does that happen? And we never want to walk away saying God is being unjust in that situation. Because the Bible's perspective is, no, no, God's not being unjust. It's that he's appointed to a day when he will bring everything to judgment. Now, sometimes he brings justice earlier than that. Sometimes he does that. But, but the Bible's perspective is there is a day. And if you, if you read like the book of Joel and some of the minor prophets there, they talk about this day of judgment, this day of the Lord as it's called. And that's the day that God will in fact bring justice. And you know, just as a footnote, God's delayed justice is actually grace. Isn't it? What would happen if the moment we were born or, or more theologically accurate, the moment we were conceived, God judged us because we were born sinful. Would that be right? Is that what we deserve? Sure it is. We, we deserve God's righteous judgment and punishment because we're all born sinful. And see, it's, it's grace that says, that where God says, I'm gonna, I'm just, I'm gonna do what's right, but I'm gonna delay it. The delaying or say it like this, the grace of God's delayed wrath is called in the Bible his patience. And we'll talk about this next week, but Romans 2 says God's patience and kindness and forbearance holds back his wrath. Why? Because it's our only hope. It gives us time to repent. Now, now here's the crazy thing. What is grace, what is saving grace in God's patience and holding back his wrath, that's grace, right? You, you know what people do? They look at his grace and they say, ha, I can get away with this. Nothing's going to happen to me because of this. God's, God's not going to bring anything. No, there's no justice here. And we interpret God's patience and God's grace as God not caring. Or worse, as God being unjust with things. So we'll talk about that more next week. Yeah, yeah, God is not slow about his slowness, sure. And we'll talk about that very verse next week. That's right. Okay? So, so, so you with me on this? You with me? Okay? God has set a date. Let me show you. Uh, Jesus actually talks about this. Turn to Matthew 12 and let's, let's talk about uh, the New Testament version of what Solomon just said in Ecclesiastes. Uh, where are we? Matthew 12, verse 36. 
we're trying to wrestle with this issue of time and eternity, thinking about suffering and when God brings justice. And, and what we're trying to see here is that God does not promise total, complete, final justice in this life. He promises it on the day of judgment. Now, this is interesting. Um, This is one of those sections in the Gospels. He talks about it a couple of times where he's explaining why we say what we say. You ever wonder that? Luke 6 sums it up. Jesus says, the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. See, there's a pipe that connects your heart to your mouth. And why we say what we say happens because of what goes on in our heart. Or or say it more simply, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so that's the context here. Verse 34, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good. Verse 35, the evil man uh, out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. Verse 36, okay? In light of that, verse 36, and I say to you that every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. You ever said something foolish? You ever said something hurtful or unkind? And you think, wow, I got away with that. No, no lightning bolt from heaven. You know, no, no calling to the, to the divine uh, courtroom to, to give test or to give, uh, uh, to stand trial for that. But God says, Jesus says, don't let that fool you into thinking that you just get away with that. Okay. Cause he says there will be a day when people will render account for everything they say on the day of judgment. Verse 37, for by your words you shall be justified. By your words you shall be condemned. Now a very important footnote to that. For those of us that are trusting in Christ, what does Romans 8.1 say? There is no condemnation. So all those careless words, for a believer trusting in Christ, those careless words are paid for in Christ. And as, as uh, John says, and we will not come under judgment because we have passed out of death into life. Okay, there's no condemnation. There's no divine day of judgment in this regard for believers. Okay, we can talk about the bema seed and you know the the reward, the judgment of believers based on our works and stuff like that. But that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about a day of judgment. In fact, I'll show you the day this is talking about. Flip flip over to Revelation chapter 20, and I'll show you exactly this day. This is a scary chapter. Revelation chapter 20, it starts with um, uh, the thousand years where, where Satan is bound, uh, what we call the millennial years. And then he is released at the end of that for Satan's final judgment. And uh, the middle of Revelation chapter 20, he's cast into the lake of fire, and we understand all of that. Um, and come to me with uh, to verse 11 of Revelation chapter 20. Let me show you the the judgment day that Solomon envisioned in Ecclesiastes, that that Joel envisions in his uh, prophecy, and that Jesus alludes to in the Gospels. 
verse 11 of chapter 20. And I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found to him. Think, think about that. God shows up to judge the world, and it says literally the earth and the heaven fled from his presence. Okay? You talk about, I can't think of a better way of, of picturing the awesome power and splendor and wrath and judgment of God coming with his gavel in his hand to judge the living and the dead. Even the earth is running away from that. Verse 12, and I saw the dead and the, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. There it is. That's what Solomon was talking about. That's what Jesus was talking about. These books are opened, and the God of the universe judges people according to their deeds. Verse 13 talks about the sea giving up the dead and death and Hades giving up the dead. So people that had already died are raised now to stand judgment before the Lord. And the end of verse 13, and every one of them is judged according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Verse 15, a very, very, very sobering verse in all of Scripture. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Most commentators and theologians understand this to be a judgment that believers do not participate in. Okay, So everybody standing here are unbelievers. None of their names are found in the Lamb's Book of Life. And so they're thrown in the lake of fire. Okay, That's judgment day. And that's the place where final justice will occur. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, if that's true, what are we supposed to do? We'll turn back to, to Romans 12 and I'll show you what we're supposed to do. You with me on this? That's final judgment day. You, you, <laughs> you do not want to be a part of that day. Um, you think about people that are playing around with God's patience. Um, that's God's grace. Um, but that there will be a day when that comes to an end and judgment will come. So what are we supposed to do? Well, believers should not take God's final justice into their own hands, okay? Or, and, and maybe we do this, we get frustrated over delayed justice. You ever been frustrated over delayed justice? Listen, listen to, to Paul's pastoral counsel to some people that are wrestling with issues like this. Okay? Listen to what he says. Verse 17 of Romans 12. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. We can get a lot of miles off of that verse, can't we? Never pay back evil for evil. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Okay? Now, now more to the point, listen to 19, and as I read 19, follow the logic with me, okay? Will you do that? Follow the logic. 
never take your own revenge. And we might, we might say, we might say it like this or, or paraphrase it like this. Never take your own justice into your own hands. Okay? Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Someone help me. Summarize that for me. What's he saying about justice and revenge? And What's he saying? One at a time here. Yeah. Go ahead, Rich. Okay. What, what's God's area? Sure. Yeah, this this final type judgment that we're talking about, okay, is God's area. Someone else? That's right. That's right. Um, part of this, this delayed justice, we have to remind ourselves we're not the judge. We're, we're not the one to go out and and step into God's shoes, as it were, and act... In, in, in bringing about justice in a way that is rightly belongs to God. Okay? That we're not to take God's responsibility from Him. And that's why it says here, leave, leave room for the wrath of God because, look, look what it says here. Because vengeance is mostly mine. Is that what it says? No, it is His. You say vengeance, that, that sounds bad. No. Vengeance, when it, when speaking of God is God's right, good, Judgment, punishment, wrath because of sin. And it is a good and holy thing. It's wrong when we try to do it. You see the difference? It's, and we can talk about whether it's an incommunicable or communicable attribute of God, but, but regardless, there is a type of justice that we are not supposed to engage in. And that is God's final complete justice. Now, now at the same time I say that, I can show you dozens of verses here that say, plead the case for the orphan. You know, help the widow. Walk alongside those who are hurting. You know, bring justice in, in, in those ways. And we say, yes, yes, those are areas where we should be working uh, to bring about justice. But that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is this final, comprehensive, God's role type justice. That, that we are not supposed to be involved in. And as Russell said, what, what are we supposed to do? Verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. See, see what we're doing there, we are making the patience and grace of God even more tangible to those people. You, you get that? You know, Romans 2 says God's patient and he's kind, and that's why he's holding back final justice. And we say that's great. Hopefully unbelievers will repent and come to that. But when we show grace to our enemy, when we feed them, when we uh, show mercy to them and compassion and we help them, we're taking the, the wonderful mercy and grace and patience of God and we're bringing it down and making it very practical for people that need to see it. And that's why, that's why when we don't do this, we end up demeaning the name of God. Because in that very moment, God is showing patience to them. And if they don't latch on, what is Romans 2? It's that patience and kindness and forbearance that leads people to what? To repentance. 
And we short-circuit that process in terms of our responsibility when we don't love our enemies like this. Do, do you see that? And in doing so, you'll, be, you'll heat burning coals on his head. We won't get into what all that means, but, but it has the idea that they're going to be more accountable now because of that. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And again, there, there's a whole sermon series in that verse. But you understand the big picture of what I'm saying? We don't have the right, we don't have the role of taking God's final justice into our own hands. And we shouldn't be frustrated over delayed justice. Instead, we should love our enemies and leave room for the wrath of God. Yes? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, because it relates to how God works in his justice. They were seeing everything that happens in Job's life as directly connected to him enacting justice. And what this is saying is God, God delays his justice sometimes. Yeah, that that's that could be an application, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You know, this this actually speaks more directly to the book of Job, where where um, uh, you know Job is saying, you know, look look at that person who's doing that horrible thing, and they're getting away with it, and they're prospering, right? Look at that that orphan, that widow, that person suffering, that innocent person, so to speak, and, and they're suffering. Why does that happen? So it's speaking more to those issues, but I think I think that's an application, sure. Okay, you okay with me on this? Okay, let's move on because this is um, we got to get through this here, and then we'll come back and talk about the character of God next time. So the first thing we have to see, we have to have a uh, comprehensive understanding of suffering. The second thing is we have to understand this whole time and eternity difference. Here's a third thing: we need to understand God's declarations and promises. Okay, I'm just going to throw all this up here for you. Suffering in some context is guided by God's divine declarations and promises, and covenants. Okay, When we're trying to understand why, why does suffering happen, sometimes it happens because suffering is connected to a promise or a declaration or a covenant that God has made. Are you with me on that? It, it's, it's part of the package of God's promises and declarations. Let me show you the very first one. Flip back to Genesis chapter 2. And let me show you how this works. This is really where it got started. Genesis chapter 2, God and Adam are hanging out in the garden. Eve isn't made yet. And uh, in Genesis 2, verse 15, God takes the man and puts him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Now watch this, okay? Watch this. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely eat. Die. Now, what is that? That is a promise that God makes that has a condition to it, doesn't it? It, Or, or, I'm sorry, a consequence to it. If you don't do this, here's what's going to happen. Now, what happens in chapter 3? You know the story. What happens? Yeah, they do. They do exactly what God tells them not to do. And... Listen to what happens. 
Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly shall you go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Chapter 3, verse 16. Now watch this. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and in pain you shall bring forth children. And yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. To Adam, verse 17. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. Now listen to the end of the verse here, okay? For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. What's that? What's to dust you shall return? It's death. That's the fulfillment of what God said in chapter 2. If you do this, this is what I'm going to do. Do you see that? So there's a connection between the suffering that Adam and Eve experienced and that divine declaration that was made in Genesis 2. And, and can I tell you even more news on that? We're still feeling the effects of that. This is where... The, remember that category of suffering we called suffering because we live in a fallen world? Here it is. That's why we die. That's why we get sick. That's why those little briars grow in my grass. Yeah. That's why that happens. And, and, and you know, I don't, th- this is not comprehensive. All sorts of things that we deal with in this world come back to this consequence of this sin. And, and you know, sometimes suffering is connected to that. It's connected to something that God has said. Let me show you another example of this. Uh, you're in Genesis 3. Flip over to Genesis 12. Sometimes there are consequences connected to the covenants that God gives. Are you guys okay with covenants? Covenants are those, those divinely initiated promises with particular people groups in Scripture. And, um, you know, we, we think about the, the Noahic covenant, which is the covenant that God made with all of humanity after the flood. Um, the, the three that we think of that are the most popular and the most spoken of in Scripture are the Abrahamic covenant, the one we're going to read here in Genesis 12, the Mosaic covenant, which we read about in Exodus, and then the New Covenant, which we know um, connects to the gospel uh, later on in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. But just just listen to, to a little bit of this Abrahamic covenant, the, the covenant God makes with Abraham. Chapter 12, uh, verse 2, he says, after asking Abraham, or actually telling him to, to leave his country, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. Verse 3, listen to this. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. What is that? This is the part where you guys talk. Yeah, what, what is verse 3? What is verse 3 in the context of the Abrahamic covenant? What is he saying there? What's going to happen? Abraham is going to father a great nation. Right, right. And God has a special covenant with 
Okay, that's right. What about verse 3 in particular? He's going to protect him, but, but listen, listen to the language. Abraham, I will bless all of those people who bless you. And understood in the context, that's the nation of Israel, right? At the same time, Abraham, anybody who curses you, the nation of Israel, I will curse. Uh, it, it's part of it, sure. But what I want you to see is God says, if you mess with my nation, if you mess with my people, you better look out. We certainly might be, yeah. I mean, there's some, we think about the Middle East and what's going on over there and and the relevancy of of some of the divine promises. But, But we do know this. God says, you mess with my people and there's judgment. We know, that's what he, you see that? So, so here, here's, what's the relevancy here? Sometimes people suffer because they are doing things that God says, if you do this, you will suffer for it. Do you see that? Where suffering is connected to one of the divine covenants, as in the case with the Abrahamic covenant. Um, and we talked about Genesis, or Deuteronomy 27 and 28 last week, so we won't duplicate that, but that, that's the same thing. That's, that's suffering and judgment that happens when you go against the Mosaic covenant. But let me show you that this is interesting. What about just sort of general promises? What if we're not talking about the people of God? Let, let me show you some examples of this with total pagans. Okay? Flip over to Exodus 4. You know where I'm going here? Early chapters of Exodus is about what? What are those about? Egypt. Okay? And, and there's this guy. His name is Pharaoh. You remember Pharaoh? And, and you remember, God calls Moses to, to be the leader of his people, to, to bring them out of Egypt. And the first thing that, that Moses was supposed to do was to go into Pharaoh and tell him what? What was he supposed to tell him? What's that? Let my people go. Okay? Now, what happens, what happens if, if this pagan king doesn't listen to Yahweh? What's gonna happen? Well, I want to show you before any of the sort of shock and awe stuff happens. Look at this. Look back at Exodus chapter 4. In in one of the very first conversations, in fact, it is the very first conversation, Moses returns to Egypt, verse 18, from the desert where God met him in the burning bush. You you remember all that. And then um, listen, listen to verse 22 of Exodus 4. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my Son, do you hear the personal ownership in that? My family, my firstborn, my son. Verse 23, so I said to you, let my son go, meaning let Israel go, let let, let the Jewish people go, that he may serve me. Now listen, listen to this. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. What's that? It's a warning, isn't it? Pharaoh, you let my people go. It's my firstborn. Those are my kids. You got to let them go. If you don't do that, if you disobey, God says, I am warning you, I will kill your firstborn. Okay, now let's think about this. What was the first plague? 
Come on, let's let's do our plague review here. Okay, I'll I'll bring the cubbies in because the cubbies know the plagues. I'll bring them in. Blood, water to blood. What was the next one? Okay, look look back, look back. Okay, you want to cheat? Look here. Okay, what's the next one? Frogs. What's next? Gnats. Then, then what? Flies. Then what? And yeah, the livestock gets sick. Then what? Okay. Then what? You think we got hail problems out here? Smashing trees in half. Then what happened? Then what happened? Then we get to Passover. And you remember they would take the, the uh, lamb, bring him in on day 10 of Nisan, the, the month, and they would bring him in and make him part of the family for a few days. And then what happened on the 14th day? They would take that lamb and they would slaughter it and they would take the blood and put it over the doorposts to, to protect their family. And that night the angel of the Lord went through the whole nation and what did he do? He killed every firstborn. And the only houses that were spared that judgment were the houses that had the blood over the door. And Pharaoh himself, and the, the Bible says something, I'll paraphrase, the Bible says something like, from the poorest farmer of the land all the way to the king's palace, people died that night. What is that? That's fulfillment of what he said in chapter 4. If you don't let my people go, I will do this. What's that show us? It shows us that sometimes, not in covenants, not in these formal promises with people, but God just says, if you do this, there's a consequence and there's suffering that can happen. What about Jonah? Jonah 3 verse 4. What happens there? You remember Jonah? Of course you do. What does he say to Nineveh? In three days, I'm destroying Nineveh. What is that? That's a warning. They repented. God showed grace to them, and he didn't, he didn't judge them. At that time, read Nahum. He comes back and judges them when they fall back into disobedience. But see, that, that's another example where there's suffering attached to a promise. Matthew 7, 26 and 27, you build your life on sand, on spiritual sand, by hearing and not obeying. What happens when the storms in life come? What happens to the house? It falls. You guys know what I'm talking about? The, the, the story Jesus tells about the two builders. One builds on the rock, one builds on the sand. You know, you know that story? One builds on the sand. That, that's the person who hears God's word but does not obey, according to Jesus. What happens when life comes? They fall apart. There's no spiritual stability. And Jesus says, and the fall was great. What's that? That's a consequence. It's suffering because people do things against which God says to not do. There's a last little category here, and this is a category we don't think about much. But it's very important. Turn to John 15. <clears throat> we'll wrap this up here. So what I'm trying to show you is that sometimes suffering happens as a direct result of a declaration of God, of a covenant of God, 
of a promise or declaration of God. And we typically think of those in the negative. If you do what is wrong, then here's this other thing. But listen to what Jesus says in John 15. Okay? We have to have a category in our heads for suffering for this reason. Chapter 15, verse 20, Jesus speaking. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. In context, who's the master? Jesus. Who are the slaves? Us. Slave is not greater than his master. And then he says this. Now now notice, notice the language here. This is a promise, okay? If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they keep my word, then they will keep yours also. What's that a promise about? What's that? Suffering. Do do you see why when we rewind the tape back to Job for a minute and they're saying suffering, divine discipline, suffering, personal sin. Jesus says suffering because you're following me. Suffering for when you do what is right. They didn't have a category for that. And I would suggest to you, we forget that category too. Any of you guys read church history? Read, read the men and women of the faith that walked before us in faithfulness, missionaries, godly leaders. You read biographies like that? You read church history? You read some of those guys? And you know what's crazy? When they suffered because of righteousness for Jesus' sake, they rejoiced. They, they said, how amazing is it that God counts me worthy to suffer for his namesake. And Peter talks about that in his, his first letter. Do, do you have a category in your thinking for suffering that says sometimes people suffer because they're doing what is right, not because they're doing what is wrong? And is that a bad thing? Read John Bunyan about that, right? He was was thankful for his imprisonment. The Puritans, the Reformers, early church fathers, modern-day missionaries, that they were counted worthy by God to suffer for his namesake. And they rejoiced in that. Help me, Greg, with the quote. What's the the Newton, the post of affliction is often the post of honor. Is that what he says? Newton, and I'll bring it to you next time. It just popped into my head. But Newton has this analogy that sometimes, like if if you're if you're in a in a a war and you're in a very important post or or place in the battle and you take a lot of uh, hits because it's a strategic place in the battle. Okay, and Newton says, you know what? They put the best soldiers there, don't they? And he uses that metaphor to talk about suffering. He says, we should think about those that suffer a lot as those being the posts of honor. Because in God's strategic abilities, he often puts believers in those situations for those very reasons. Do you you follow me on that? Do you have a category in your head that says suffering for righteousness is a good thing? Yes, Rich and then um, Sally.
And that's that's where we're going. That's it. That's it. Yes, ma'am. Well, and, and I, I wish we could take time to unpack that. Do, do you understand the logic behind that? It, it's, it's part of being a follower of Christ. It's, it's a privileged position. It's a post of honor. And, and, and one little line he says in there, because it holds up the life of Jesus more clearly and gloriously in the midst of the suffering. Uh, do you guys know uh, 2 Timothy 3.12? Anybody know that from memory? I'll start it for you. All those who... All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Um, so let's keep in mind that we need to have a category that says there is a suffering for righteousness' sake. And as we've illustrated through examples and other scripture, um, that's a glorious privilege. You know, some of you are... are are, are suffering right now, and, and maybe it's related to your walk with the Lord. Maybe you don't know what it's related to. But we, we can heed what the Scripture says and say that that's a place of privilege and honor that God would, would grace you with that so that the life of Christ may be seen more clearly in the midst of that. Okay, we'll come back and wrap this up next time. Let's pray.